before we actually begin, uh, I want to take a moment of personal privilege, if I may, and tell you that it has been sheer delight for me to be here. And uh, my wish was that Mary could be here with me. In fact, that was our intention until Friday. Uh, our granddaughter has turned 29. Her birthday was Saturday, so we celebrated Friday uh, so that Papa, that's me, uh, could be with them. We went to see the movie The Shack and had a lunch, a supper after, and all that kind of thing. However, we got a bad report from the doctor about our granddaughter on Friday, and it is does not look hopeful in terms of uh, the surgeries that are uh, before her. And so my wife just felt it would be better to remain at home over the weekend, be there special, you know, kind of a special way on Saturday. So I have to confess to you that you have missed uh, meeting the best one of the Burleson duo, okay? Uh, but maybe one of these days you'll be able to meet her and she you because I've told her about you and uh, she's always grateful to know a responsive congregation. And frankly, you've been that. Uh, trust me, I've done this for a number of years and uh, I know when people, I'm not saying agree with me because I don't look for people to agree with me. I look for people to hear me and to be open to what's said and take it and search out those things to see if they be so. And you have had an openness uh, toward uh, every study that I've shared with you that it has been a thrilling thing for me. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate your staff. I was able to meet all morning with them, frankly. There were six of us, I guess, there. And we had a great time together, and then some of us went to lunch together. And uh, I do this every meeting I go to, spend Monday morning with the pastor and his staff. And we talked about some staff-related things, relationships and things of that nature. And uh, so it was just wonderful. And your staff has a heart for the Lord, a heart for the Word of God, and they have a love for each other. And that is, uh, sad to say, a rare thing uh, in Baptist life in this day. And uh, I don't emphasize Baptist very often, but... Uh, most of the time that I go to churches, it's that, that, that denomination. And uh, they're not always in, you know, enjoy each other. But your staff really does, and I'm thrilled by it. And then I've got to just tell you this, and I'm not going to look at him as I say it because he would be embarrassed and would be saying, no, no, cut it off, you know. Uh, but you have every reason on earth to thank God for the man who is your lead pastor. Scott is one of those rare guys who have a heart for the Lord and a heart for the Word of God, at the same time having a deep heart of love for the people for whom he has some kind of uh, ministry responsibility, and that's you. He loves you, and you love him. That's been obvious. And then, of course, I've discovered this week, because I never met her, but he married far above himself. <laughs> you ever had to lose him, try to keep her, would you? Uh, uh, but he did the same thing I did. In fact, all of your staff couples are just rare, uh, rare things in relationships, and I'm grateful for it. And on top of that, the best-looking people showed up tonight. Can you imagine that? I mean, you know, everybody else is okay looking, but the best looking ones. Can I hear an amen on that? All right. Would you stand with me? And we're going to read a passage of scripture. Turn to 1 Corinthians. 
1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. And I'm going to read uh, several verses. It's a very familiar passage of scripture, but uh, it'll be the basis of what I'm going to be saying. Now, in, in a manner of speaking, I'm not going to be dealing textually with this. It's going to introduce us to a subject. And then I'm going to show you a concept concerning this subject. Let's begin reading at uh, uh, verse 9. Let's begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor has any ear heard, it hasn't even entered into the heart of any man the things which God hath prepared for those who love him. Now, how many times have you heard that at a funeral? Mm -hmm. uh, saying goodbye to a deceased loved one, and the pastor says, I has not seen, ear hasn't heard, hasn't even been thought of what God has prepared for them that love him. But our dear departed loved one is now experiencing those things. Now, that's a true statement. But I would want the preacher to read the next verse. But God has. Now, this is the aorist tense in the Greek. It means a completed past action that continues with the completed work. So what it's saying is, uh, in verse 9, uh, in verse 10, but God has already revealed them unto us by his spirit. Revealed to us what? All those wonderful things that have never entered anybody's mind or ear or even into their eye to be seen. Those things God has already revealed to us, Christian, through the word by is a little Greek word dia, meaning through, through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? In that way, the things of God knows no man but the spirit of God only. Now, we have received, talking to Christians, we, we Christians, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that, and the little word that's a purpose clause in the Greek, in order that we might know Right now, that's the present tense, that we might presently, right now, know the things that are freely given to us of God. Powerful passage of Scripture to show the uh, wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. Be seated now, if you will. Now, all this conference... From yesterday morning on, I have been making a statement, and no one has uh, argued with me about it. Uh, I don't know whether it's because you agree with me on it or because you're just nice people who don't agree out loud. And, you know, just, uh, but a lot of places people would disagree with me and argue with me, and that statement is this. God only lives in a three-room house. I kind of said it flippantly and you know, uh, kind of in a silly fashion, but you knew that I meant that. God only lives in a three-room house. Now, the reason some people would argue is because there are some people who believe that man in whom God dwells by the Holy Spirit is only a two-part creature. The technical term is diachotomy. Some people believe that 
Man is a dichotomy in his makeup. Two parts. Other people believe that man is a trichotomy in his makeup. Those, that's three. Three parts. Now, sometimes those who believe that man is a twofold in his nature will get mad at those who believe that man is threefold in his nature and threefold nature folks will get mad at twofold nature folks. So let me just tell you what I think about both of those issues. I think they're both right. And that's why I don't think either one of them are to, ought to argue with the other one because both are right. For example, man is made two parts, material and immaterial. But the, there is also the scriptures that say that the immaterial aspect of human creation is two-part, soul and spirit. Now, here's the deal. Psychology cannot explain that. Biology cannot explain that. Only theology can explain the division between soul and spirit. Only the Word of God can make the correct division between it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how it comes about that man is in the mess we're in and what God does by the person of his Holy Spirit to bring about some order to the mess that we're in. And in order to do it, I'm going to turn into an artist tonight. Now, it's going to take a sanctified, anointed imagination to recognize anything that I ever draw. Okay? So we're going to trust the Lord. Uh, I'm going to draw your portrait. Here we are. Here's the way we're going to start. Okay, now that looks a little more like me than it does you. But we're going to start there. And we're going to call this your body. Now the body is that which relates you to the natural, physical world. You relate to the physical, tangible world because you have a body. You're sitting in a chair because you have a body. You see me and I see you because we have a body that has certain senses. Our eyes, part of our natural body, have the capacity to see. Um, you are natural in creation in terms of relating to this natural world. You're earthy. Your body is made up of the stuff that goes back to dust from the natural order back to the natural order. And the scripture indicates that it is your body that relates you to the natural, physical world. However, you're different than other things that relate to the natural, physical world. This is body substance. This is body substance. But there's something in us as human beings that make us a whole lot different than this table or this whiteboard. And it's what, it's a capacity that we will call the soul. And it is the soul that relates 
you to yourself and others. Now, if you were to describe the soul, you would have to say there's something uh, about it that is a will, that's volition, emotion, and the mind, that's intellect. So there's something that is intellectual, emotional, and volitional in you, in your soul life. This stand does not have the capacity to think, feel, or choose. But you do. Now, you have a body that relates you to physical, tangible stuff, but you're a whole lot more than a body. You're distinctively soul, according to Scripture. Now, the only problem is all animal life is soul life. Okay? In Genesis chapter 1, it says God created the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beast of the field, every living, and the King James says creature, and that's the Hebrew word soul. And man hasn't even been created yet. Now, it is true that all animal life has a capacity for choice, emotion, and even intellect. Not on the level of the human intellect. You understand that, and I do too. Let's illustrate it. Take a pup. You kick a pup, you've injured its psychic, its emotions. It runs off, whelping, not just physically hurt, but there's something you can see with the drop of his head and so on. There's an emotional capacity. It's not near as highly refined as the human animal, but in fact, it's there. You see? Um, a, a, a dog can choose. You walk up to a porch late at night. There's a German shepherd laying on the porch, and it looks like it's asleep. You don't know whether he'll choose to bite you or not bite you, and if you're smart as I am, you'll stay in the car and honk the horn. Okay? And a dog can think. Now, not rationally like the human mind. It's dog, animals are taught to think repetitively. You remember Pavlov's dog? They rang the bell, put in food, and of course the dog smelled the food, saliva began secreted, and he ate. Uh, they put, rang a bell, put in more food, and he smelled, and saliva secreted, he ate, and after many times of repeating that, they rang the bell and did not put in the food, and saliva gland secreted anyway because he associated his tiny little mind the presence of that bell with the food that was to be there. Uh, our granddaughter, when she was just 18, 20 months, I took her to a, a mall. She's more like Pavlov's dog than she was other human beings. Uh, like any 18-month-old, she was running in and out. And I mean, I could say, don't do it. No, don't do it. Don't, you know, don't. But I came prepared. I'm a grandpa many times over. And I pulled out the cookie. <laughs> and I said, Sierra, look what I've got. She saw it, and I started walking in like Pavlov's dog. See, I don't think 18-year-olds have spirits yet. I think they're still more in the animal kingdom than they are. <laughs> I'm just joking. But, but do you understand? Have you ever noticed, I'm, by the way, I am not a pet lover. Now, some people love pets. I just never have. I'm sorry. 
I don't know if it said something about my character or not, but I just... Now, everybody loves pets. Uh, pets assume that everybody else does too. Scott, I've been in meetings. I remember one where a woman had about five cats in her house where we went to eat. Now, nothing wrong with cats unless they jump on their lap like Tom did with me, started purring around my face and his whiskers went up my nostrils and she thought that was the sweetest most loving thing. I thought that was the stupidest thing that ever happened. <laughs> Fortunately, the, the phone rang. She went to get it and I didn't hurt the cat. I just pinched it just a little and it jumped off my lap and never got back on my lap. Now, I'm not boy, if you are a pet lover please understand I'm not diminishing you. Uh, it, in fact, I would rather diminish myself. I'd probably like something in the long run, okay? But the fact is, as human beings, we're different than all other animal life because we have this capacity called spirit. And it is the spirit in man that relates you to God. So that when Adam was created, placed in the garden, he was placed there, spirit, soul, and body. He was related to the garden. In fact, he and Eve, his wife, were told to tend the garden and care for it and take care of things. And he was, he was related to himself. He was self-aware because he later said, I, I saw that I was naked and I was fearful. And he was related to Eve in the same way, emotionally. But he was related to God. He walked with God in the cool of the day. Adam was man as man was intended to be in creation. Body, soul, and spirit. Now, you know the story. I'm not going to belabor it at all. Scripture says God told Adam and Eve of all the trees you can eat except one. Now, the tree of life in the center of the garden, there was no commandment not to eat of that tree. They, they were free to eat of the tree of life if they chose to. But God said, there's only one. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's out in the boondocks, a little brush, not much, but leave it alone. Don't eat of that tree. Now, the reason God did that, now listen, is because he wanted Adam, anytime you have a relationship, two people really love each other, it takes both people in that relationship, making a choice to be in it. And God wanted to have a real relationship with Adam, so Adam and Eve had the capacity to choose to continue to relate to God. And you know the story. The devil came to him and said, the reason God told you not to eat that tree, and he knows if you do, you're going to be like him. You'll be independent. You won't need anybody. And in some way that sounded good, and Eve told her husband they took the fruit and they ate the fruit. God came walking in the cool of the day. They had sewed fig leaves together. Now, they didn't sew fig leaves together to hide from God. They sewed fig leaves together to hide from each other. See, prior to sin injury, they had been open and honest and naked and unashamed with each other. And all at once, the presence of sin causes them to hide. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, sin causes couples to hide from each other even to this day. They dove in the bushes to hide from God. And you know the story on that, that kind of thing. Now the point is this. God had told them, don't eat of the tree. Because, and here it is now. In the day you eat, that day, the Hebrew says, that day, you will die. 
and you will continue to die. That's the language of the, of the Hebrew language as Adam was instructed. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That day, if you eat it, you'll die and you'll continue to die. Now, did Adam die that day? Well, he didn't die physically that day. God drove them out of the garden, placed the cherubim so they couldn't get back in and eat of the tree of life because if they'd done that, they would have remained lost forever. So God put a, an archangel there to guard it. They were still alive in the natural world. They were even still alive in the soulish world. They were relating to each other in their shame and in their fear. They were relating to each other. But they died spiritually. They now were no longer related to God. They had the capacity to relate with him because, remember, death never means cessation. Death never means annihilation. Death means, in Scripture, separation. When you die from the, in, from, in, physically, naturally, you're separated from the physical, natural world. When you die spiritually, you're separated from God who is spirit. That doesn't mean you're separated from him because he's omniscient. His spirit is everywhere. It means you have no capacity to relate to him. You have no relationship with him. You can't enjoy him, know him. Experiencing you're dead spiritually according to Paul when he wrote to the Romans. And so Adam died. Now, he still had his spirit, but now his spirit is void of the one for whom it was created, God who is spirit. And so Adam lives his life in the natural world, driven by his soulish Appetites, his volition, his emotion, his intellect, but having no spiritual capacity until God gave him instructions about some sacrifices, someone dying for him. He didn't fully understand it. It wasn't even fully explained at that time. But here's the point. What God did was establish a way in the Old Testament where men could relate to him again, but it would take the death, because the wages of sin is death, the death of something who had no sin. Well, the goats and calves that were killed didn't mean they didn't have anything wrong with it. it technically, it means they didn't have Adam's kind of wrong. And so they were a stand-in in picture form of something God was going to do one day. Every time a lamb was killed, it was the death of something that had nothing to do with Adam's failure. And it was a testimony of someone who was coming who would be what Adam did not choose to be, a man surrendered to the Father and would die on behalf of Adam. Now, of course, you know the story then. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on the cross. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. As our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. Aaron was an earthly priesthood. Melchizedek was a heavenly uh, kind of thing. And he was a picture of who Jesus is and our high priest. Jesus took his own blood into the Holy of Holies and sat down. 
and the law was covered. Now, remember, Adam didn't eat of the tree of life. He left in a lost condition, but God helped him with the sacrificial system as a testimony of his faith that God would work it out. 2,000 years ago, God established a second tree of life. It's called the cross of Christ. And when any person, by faith, eats of the fruit of the tree of life, now that's a literal way of saying, a natural way of saying, by faith, trust who Christ is and what he did for redemption. The scripture says the Holy Spirit comes to live in your human spirit. And all at once, ladies and gentlemen, you have been what some people love to call born again. All at once, you have and I have a relationship to God. Now, we have our body, we have our soulishness, and we have the spirit within us relating to God. In other words, Christians don't become abnormal. Christians become exactly normal. What God intended from the beginning. A full relational critter. Every human being is to be. Related to the natural world. Related to the soulish world. The mind, will, and emotion. And related to the spiritual world. God who is the source of it all. Being spirit. We're related to him. And so you become as a Christian normal. Now. All of this leads me to the question that I want to close the conference with, uh, and that's this. You see what I'm talking about, about us being the house of God, dwelling in the holy place, which is our spirit. But the question is this. How does the Holy Spirit living in us control us? Because the essence of real Christianity is the Holy Spirit. I may have to shed my sweater here in just a minute. So if, if I do, well, you'll just forgive me for that. I wore it, probably shouldn't have. How does the Holy Spirit control us? Now, does he control us through our body? There are certain appetites in the body. By the way, did you know, according to Scripture, the body is not evil? The body is neutral. There is a principle of sin dwelling in our body. But our human bodies are neutral. We have appetite. There's an appetite for hunger. There's an appetite for sex. There's an appetite for other things. That, those are natural appetites. Now, the thing God doesn't want is for us to be under the control of our body. He wants our body to be under control. Are you following me? I love going up and down Baptist churches and Southern Baptist life anyway, Scott, half the year, reminding people that God invented sex, not you, Heather. <laughs> you, imagine, you can't imagine how many people are surprised by that. You see, sex is not evil. It's just not to be in control. It's to be under the control. That's why the scripture says the marriage bed is undefiled. Because that's God's purpose for sexuality. 
But the point is this. The Holy Spirit does not lead us through our body. Our bodies are okay. That's why God's going to raise your body one day. Now, when he raises your body, it will be in a different material. Your body is what one of my friends calls your earth suit. It climatizes you to this earth. If you go out into space, you better have a space suit because that's a different climate. You need to be climatized. When you go to heaven, you're going to be really climatized with a heavenly earth suit. Heavenly, resurrected, glorified body. And it'll climatize you to eternity. Your body is not evil. It's the outward expression of who you are. God's going to raise your body. Now, I could get into the fact that the body is not evil and uh, what you do with your body is not, you know, uh, hold on, just a says, man shall earn his bread by the sweat of his face. I believe that goes for Baptist preachers. Just like that. <laughs> See, I'm being biblical when I perspire just a little bit. I'm just joking, folks. So, if you're here for the first time, you may not know I joke a lot, okay? But the point is, the body is to be under control, not in control of you as a human being. Okay, then let me ask you this. Does God control you by your will? Well, now to hear a lot of Baptist talk, you think he does. Because that's all they ever talk about. Will you do this? Will you do that? You have to choose to do this. You have to choose to do that. Nothing wrong with a will except it's a fallen will. There's no such thing in the fall as free will. It's free to only sin. No will is free to do righteous things until the Holy Spirit empowers it to do that. So God doesn't want us under the control of our will. Willfulness is the essence of sin. Satan said, I will be like the most high. You see what I'm saying? Well, does he control us by our emotions? Well, I hear a lot of people talk, you think so, because that's what they talk about, it's how they feel. I didn't feel the presence of the Lord. I didn't feel like God was near. I didn't feel. Ladies and gentlemen, feelings are so fickle. Now, they're real, and they're not sinful, by the way. There is nothing wrong with the feeling of fear. Okay? In fact, the feeling of fear is a very helpful emotion in the natural world. Storms come in. You've experienced something. You have a sense of, ooh, wait a minute, better be ready. Uh, people are fearful of snakes, and if they're not, they're stupid. <laughs> our two grandsons, great big strapping grandboys, caught a bull snake in our little shed out behind our house. Great big thick bull snake. Brought it up to Papaw. Papaw, I don't want that snake. I don't want to even see it. My wife comes out and takes that snake. Said, Paul, come. And literal truth, she started chasing me. <laughs> and I ran right down our neighbor's yard and across the two, with my wife with that bull snake in her hand. And she is a reprobate. <laughs> I have a 
natural fear of serpents. I don't know why. I just don't like them. Now, according to Scripture, if you act on the basis of your fearfulness, then the action is a sinful thing. For instance, his disciples, uh, when they were on board that ship and the storm came, and they woke Jesus up and said, Master, don't you care that we're going to perish? They were scared to death. The fear of this the sin was not in their fear. Listen to what he said. Oh, ye of little faith, why are you so fearful? What he was saying was, why are you acting on the basis of your fear instead of your faith? And the reason I know they were not acting on the basis of faith is because, listen to what they said. Master, by the way, they woke him up and said, don't you care that we perish? That means he was asleep when the storm started. I mean, uh, awake when the storm started. It doesn't make any sense. But he went to sleep in the middle of the storm. And they said, don't you even care that we're about to perish? That was their action because of their fearfulness. It was a lack of faith. Perfect love cast out fear, meaning if I learn to love, I'll live with my fear without acting on the basis of them. Human emotions are natural. Now, if they get in control, then you have to get help. If you develop a phobia, you have to get help because the emotional or the soulish state of your being is in charge, and that's dangerous. Well, if the if the Holy Spirit doesn't control us by our will, our emotion, or our mind, how, uh, how or our emotions, how does the Holy Spirit control? And the answer is, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, let this mind be in you. Did you know the battleground for every believer is the mind? Whatever, whoever, whomever it is that controls your mind is in control of your life. As a man or a woman or person, that's a generic term, man, meaning any person. As a person thinks, so is he. I'm going a little personal here about my own life, and I share it. because it pinpoints, illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. I was not raised in a Christian home. My dad and mother were both alcoholics. They divorced three times, never remarried anybody else, remarried each other each time. As I told you the other night, they couldn't live with each other and couldn't live without each other. But they were driven by anger, driven by alcohol, I didn't know anything about church life. I was never inside a church until I was 12 years old. I literally kept my parents from killing each other. Chairs through windows, things like that. My job as the oldest boy was to see that they didn't do great damage to each other. But you know when you're a child, three, four, five, six years old, the most significant person in your life are your parents. Whatever they say, whatever they think, whatever they do to you, you think they're right. That's the way you are. Are you following me now? Dad's stronger than any policeman. 
Mom's more beautiful than Miss America. Every two, three, four-year-old child thinks that. As did I. But then the damage began to come. One of the main things that I struggled with and had to come to grips with in um, bringing life out of nothing was the belief that I could do nothing right. My dad used to say to me, I wish you'd do something right once in a while. You never do anything right. He'd tell me to clean up the garage, and I'd clean up the garage, and he'd come in that evening and start in anger removing things because I didn't do it right. Now, if your dad, you're four or five years old, says you can't do anything right, what do you begin to believe about yourself? I can't do anything right. I grew up thinking, believing. The word is thinking. It's a belief system that I can't do anything right. Now, there are two ways that people generally react if they really believe they can't do anything right. One way is they hide. I can't do anything right. I'll stay behind. They live between the wallpaper and the wall. And it's a sad situation. In fact, I've spent years of pastoral counseling bringing people out of that. I didn't react that way. There's another way you can react, and that is you become super aggressive because you're going to prove that you can do it. Now, the reason you're super aggressive to prove you can do it is because you really do believe you can't, but you've got to show that you can. I reacted that way. And by the way, Super aggressive people who don't really believe they can do anything well make great salesmen and great preachers. <laughs> because they've got a lot to prove. Now, who are they proving it to? They think they're proving it to people. They even think they might be proving it to dad if he just looked. But who are they really trying to prove it to? Themselves. All right, now, I'm 17 years old. I meet a girl. Mm, she's a honey. I want to marry her. She's not sure. I convince her. I'm sure enough for both of us. <laughs> she graduates from high school on Tuesday night. We get married on Thursday night. She's now 17. I'm 18. Our first child is born 10 months from our wedding day. Our oldest birthday is April 1st. Ten months after our wedding, Cherry's on the scene. Our third child was born on our fourth wedding anniversary. I'm telling the truth. When we went in to see the doctor in a little Seminole church that I was pastoring, he asked Mary, he said, young lady, do you know what's causing this? <laughs> and after he explained that the caboose wasn't born for nine years, I'm joking. He did say that. He did say that. But we had a boy later, nine years later. But here's my point. I'm already pastor. I'm a husband. I'm a father. Only I believe I can't. Can't what? Really be a husband. Really be a father. Really be a pastor. But I don't withdraw and fail to attempt 
I become super aggressive to prove that I can. So I'm pastoring a church. You let someone in the church say, Brother Paul, I just don't think you're teaching that correctly. I'll show you. And I mean, I'll get a series going to convince them that what I'm saying is the truth. Or somebody said, you know, preachers' kids are the worst. I'll show you. I'll get my children under my thumb. You do what I say. You be what I want. Why? Because I'm trying to help them and parent them? No. I'm trying to prove I can. And they're going to be the evidence that I have. Do you understand why we've spent several years repenting and that our oldest three are the most gracious Christians I've ever known basically because they didn't, they survived their mother and me and have been willing to forgive us. See, I wasn't an alcoholic like my dad. I was addicted to religion. I went to an AA group one time when I was 35 years old. Nobody knew who I was. They went around and introduced themselves. I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. I'm Jane, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, an alcoholic. And he came to me and I said, I'm Paul, I'm a religion-holic. They said, what? And I told them honestly, I've been addicted to religion to prove that life can be happy and successful and it hasn't done anything because I missed what life was all about. And I gave a little bit of the, the gospel and they never questioned me. There's some of the great, most gracious people at those meetings you'll ever experience. You see what I've said? I had developed a pattern of believing something. Now, you say, well, Brother Paul, I was raised by good parents, and I understand that, and I'm grateful for that. Praise the Lord for that. But maybe you now presently feel lonely. Nobody comes by. Kids don't visit like they used to. You know what lonely people, people who believe they're lonely, you know how they act? They act lonely. They act like nobody cares. They're the last to come into a church auditorium and the first to leave and the first to complain that nobody's friendly. Why? Because they've got to prove that they're lonely. They're out to prove something. Your mind is the key. So what happens is this. Now watch this. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you. All at once, you hear a different truth. Listen to it. My life verse. I, Paul Groson, can do all things through Christ, who is the source of of my strength. That's my life verse. Now, it doesn't mean I can do all things without exception. I can't jump off a 50-story building and live. That's not what I'm saying. But that verse isn't saying that either. That verse is saying I can do all things. I can be all things that God intends. I can do what a husband is to do. I can do what a father is to do. I can do what a pastor is to do. Now, listen. But I'm not doing it to prove to anybody. I'm not doing it even to prove to myself. I'm now choosing to do it because my Lord says to be that. I take a step in faith and the Holy Spirit is released to accomplish what only he can. 
That's what the Bible means when it says be filled with the Spirit. Do you understand being filled with the Spirit does not mean you get more of the Spirit? It's like that verse that says be filled with all joy. doesn't mean you get more joy. It means in the context of a moment, of situation, of living, you're controlled by joy instead of sorrow. You're controlled by love instead of hate. You're controlled by spirit instead of flesh. Out to prove something. Now, ladies and gentlemen, walking in the spirit, being filled with the spirit, is not an emotional experience. It is a transformation of your mind. It's called the mind of Christ in the later part of that second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Let the mind of Christ be real in you so that when you read the scriptures and you see the truth, the Holy Spirit brings revelation. It may challenge your personal belief system. I'm lonely. No one loves me. No one is coming to see me. But the truth, listen to it, Hebrews 5.13, 13.5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when we step out believing we are never alone, the Holy Spirit is set free. I've had men in counseling sessions who say, I can't love my wife. I've had wives in counseling session who say, I can't love my husband. They're just unlovable. They're just unlovely, one against the other. When they began to discover, I can be what God is being to me in the power of the Spirit, they choose to move toward, in love, a partner. And transformation, miracles happen in marriages. The Spirit becomes a reality in the life. Why? Because he dwells in us to empower us to be what God has redeemed us to be. But he'll only do it as our minds are transformed by the truth that he has given us in his revelation called the word of God. Now, somebody's going to say, rightfully so, Brother Paul, how does this relate to the time? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> you see the tabernacle? The outer court, it's the only part which you could see with a natural eye. You see what I'm saying? It relates to what we call our body, our natural world body. There's a little two-room house there. The first room is called the holy place. It relates, I believe, and I'm simply laying it on the table for you to research, the soulishness of man. The holy of holies, where the high priest alone went and the glory of God descended, the presence of God, relates to our spirit. So the house in which God dwelt in the wilderness was spirit, soul, body from inside out. And the house he lives in and every person in this room tonight is spirit, soul, body from inside out. But here's what I want you to see. Inside that holy place were three items. The first one is the candlestick. When they walked in, now remember the labor was outside. They had to wash their hands and their feet, cleansed for fellowship. When they walked in, 
There was a candelabra, which was the only source of light. No windows, no doors, only the candlestick. They lit it. It was, the oil was untouched by human hands. They lit it, and light began to fill the room. It is a picture, a symbol. Revelation and other places or verses, just check it out, Google it, look at it, research it on you, and you'll love it. It'll be a great research for you. It's the only source of light. Whatever you do in that room has to be illuminated by that candle. Now, the Holy Spirit is like that candle. He is the source of spiritual light. Only the Holy Spirit can discern between soul and spirit. And you'll see this in a minute. But the candlestick gives light. But what does it give light to? The item on the right. If you're standing facing it, it's the next one. It's the table of showbread. Twelve loaves of bread that they brought in, and seven days later, they left them on the table for seven days. Seven days later, they would come in with twelve more loaves, and they would eat every one of these loaves. And it was as fresh as it was the day they brought it in. Now Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So that when the Holy Spirit illuminated the Lord Jesus to your mind, and you became a Christian, you live the rest of your life walking with the Holy Spirit illuminating the record of the bread. That's why the Word of God is called, also called, the bread of life. So as you go to Scripture, trusting the Holy Spirit to illuminate it, make it understandable. It's some work sometimes. Study of words, study of doctrines, hearing conferences and so on. But it takes the Holy Spirit to give understanding of the word of God, the bread of life. And the next item, the altar of incense. This is where they poured the oil mixed with perfumes and so on. We sang about it a moment ago. And there was a sweet smelling savor that went up. And as a priest living in the holy place, and by the way, this is every day that we live. We live in the holy place unless we get dirty and we have to deal with that dirt. Not because of salvation, not because God's angry. Oh, no. Listen, people, God never gets angry. All of the anger against you as a Christian was poured out on Jesus when he died on the cross. You'll never experience the wrath of God. The wrath of God was part of the penalty that Jesus paid on our behalf. Now, you can grieve him. You can break his heart, but you'll never make him angry with you. But what you can do is lose the ability to enjoy him because you're outside abiding in him. You get dirty. You have to deal. Confession is called. Walk back into this unity with Christ where you enjoy his very presence. Why? Because the veil that separates that room from the Holy of Holies has been torn down. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Now, 
when you and I abide, we're priests are to abide in the holy place, enjoying the sweet aroma of who the Lord Jesus is, God's presence is real to us right there, which was never experienced by the priests of the old covenant. Only priests that you and me of the new covenant can experience his presence in that way. Now, do you go to church to do this? Oh, no, no, no. Do you have a revival meeting to do this? No, 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 no. Well, when do you do this? You're there. You're there. Paul said, for we have been, that's heirs, past tense, past action with ongoing consequences. We have been seated together with him in the heavenlies. And it's in the present tense. It's not talking about one day when you get to heaven. It's talking about living in the heavenlies right now. Where are the heavenlies right now? Wherever you are tomorrow morning. Wherever you are tomorrow afternoon. Wherever you are next Friday. Wherever you are next, oh, next Sunday. You may be here, but it's no different here than it is when you're on the job Monday. In terms of where you are abiding in Christ, you just come together to enjoy other people as you worship corporately. But every moment of every day is a reality of Christ in us, the hope, and that word means absolute certainty, of what? Glory. And glory means his manifested presence. It's always done with the understanding that sin is ever present. There's a principle of sin that remains in us. That's not who you are. It's a principle of sin that remains in you. Now watch. It will take the resurrection for that principle of sin to go. And when the resurrection happens in a glorified body, body, will, emotion, mind, spirit will be perfect in the presence of the one that we worship. But until that day, enjoy him every moment of your life as you abide in Christ and Christ abides in you. It's not something you do. So we're not saying you have to do this, do this, do this. It's something you are to be. What is that? You're to be thoughtful, aware of the reality of who you are because of the grace of God and how you are because God has done it and where you are in the mind of God, seated with him in the heavenlies. And then what do you do? Go to work. Go to school. Dress your kids. Feed your kids. Raise your kids. Send them to school. Be a plumber. Be a doctor. Be a lawyer. But let me tell you something. For a Christian, all of that is not secular. There is no such thing as secular for the believer. Everything is sacred. Everything is sacred. Every time you dress your child, it's a sacred moment. Why? Because God's present, dwelling in you and you in him. I know we still live in the natural world. I know we still see things that are horrible. That's why this journey is defined in Scripture as a journey of faith. But when Jesus returns with a new kingdom, faith will become what? Sight, but it'll be spiritual sight. It'll be reality sight, not just a natural eyesight. It'll be a spiritual sight, and that's what Christianity is all about.
So, what happens then is the next picture. We just go about worshiping the Lord, enjoying the Lord every moment of every day, sitting at a table today with staff and, and, and others at the table, in a conference, on a job, in the midst of a horrible tragedy, like a tornado that more Oklahoma had and Joplin had. And you begin to work and relate to people, but you're never out of this great abiding sense in your mind and heart of the reality of Christ in you. And you're in him. And life is worth living. Now, do I still struggle with feelings? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I still do. In fact, you probably thought uh, Sunday morning I was sitting over here, standing over here, praying, Lord, thank you for the privilege of ministering to these dear people and anoint them and bless them. And actually, my thought was while I was sitting there, oh, I don't know whether I can do this or not. I don't know these people. But very quickly, I understand the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I can be all things God intends me to be in the power of the strength of the one who is my life. And so you step out in faith, moving on. It's called walking in the Spirit. And I believe the tabernacle shows us how. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. And uh, I have to tell you, I suffer from allergies, and I wasn't going to send anybody, but I will. But uh, antihistamines and a lot of what I take because of the natural world, I'd be glad when allergies are not in heaven, okay? Uh, and it does affect me physically. So the sweat is not the temperature, it's uh, antihistamines that I have to take in order to have the ability to not blow and, and breathe, okay? And it happens every time this year, time of year, every place I go. So I apologize for that. But you're, you listen well. So what I want to do is open it up for a question that you might want to have, a question you might wish to ask, further explanation or whatever. Let's do it in this final moment, okay? Anyone at all? What question do you have? I'm not okay. How come other uh, we don't hear this now? I guess this is my question. We don't well, hear this from other folks. Yeah. I um, honestly I don't have an answer to that question. I wish I did. I, it's a little bit of a mystery to me. I've been teaching this since 1964. Uh, I've taught it all over. And to me, it's one of the better studies. I don't mean my doing it. I mean anybody who would do this. Uh, it's a study that's worth hearing. And I'm not sure why it's not. I wish I knew an answer to that. But I'm sorry. The first question I cannot answer. I don't know why they're not. I think it's sad that they're not, but I don't know why. I could speculate a little bit, but I'd rather not do that. I, uh, I'll just have to leave it there. I don't any other question? Yes. Paul, you've spoken a lot about uh, about joy and, and about living in the in the joy of, of 
Spirit, uh, what, what would be some practical tips for those of us that find ourselves in a dry season or in a, in a season where there's not a lot of natural joy? Okay. Uh, I would say... It's, it's an old saying, but it's a true saying. You know, a cliche becomes a cliche because there's some truth to it, and it's used a lot. And it is the old cliche, don't ever look for joy. Look for the one who is your life, and joy is a result of that. This is what the scripture says. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after now, we say righteousness. The original text says the righteousness. Definite article. It's a reference to who Jesus is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after Jesus. For they, and it's in the emphatic, and they alone will be filled. Now watch this. There is a, an ongoing hunger to know more of Jesus. And there is a constant satisfaction of not being hungry. That sounds like a contradiction. It's an oxymoron. You know, I love oxymorons. Uh, you know, jumbo shrimp is one of the biggest oxymorons. <laughs> you know, if it's jumbo, it can't be shrimp. But if it's shrimp, it can't be jumbo, you know. I'll tell you the biggest oxymoron I ever heard is sanitary landfill. That's an oxymoron. <laughs> Blessed are they that hunger. For they shall be continually filled. That's an oxymoron. Here's the point. Joy, peace, all of those things that we search for are not ever found searching for them. It's when our hunger is to know the reality of who Jesus is as our life. We find, oh my goodness, peace is abiding. Oh my stars, joy is there but you're not looking for it. It's the serendipitous work of the Holy Spirit as you're focusing on knowing more of Jesus. It's what the study is all about, knowing more of Jesus. Does that make sense? So that's the only way I would answer that because I have high joys in the natural realm and I get deeply depressed in the natural realm. But when I really understand Jesus' life and learn to exercise faith in that. I find myself not going nearly as high, not going nearly as low, but the great thing is I find out I'm not looking for anything. I'm really satisfied. Except for my hunger. By the way, you do know that that's the only way God works in your life is on the basis of your hunger. Blessed are those who hunger, thirst after that, for they and they only shall be. If there's no appetite to know him, He'll never work in your life. If there is a hunger to know him, I don't care what your past is, I don't care how many times you failed, he works to the level of your appetite. So if a person's been married five times, gets, gets hungry to know Jesus, or a person who's failed umpteen times is hungry to know Jesus, God will work in their heart. But the minute the appetite for Jesus is lost, his working in your life will not be experienced because he works according to your appetite. So my answer to you is don't look for joy. Look for Jesus. And I don't mean that in a cliche. I mean it. Look to know him in ways you've never known him. And I believe peace and joy and all of that 
will become a reality in your life? Great question, and frankly, I hope some way the answer helps. All right? Anybody else? I wish I could talk to you another time or two. I'm not near finished. It's like bologna, you know. You've got to just cut it off. And that's what I have to do. I just have to because there's too much. Uh, but we've got time for another question or two. So any, any other question? I have a good friend who's with the Lord now, Manly Beasley. Do any of you know Manly and Martha Beasley? Manly Beasley used to say, good Bible teaching raises as many questions as it answers. So please, would you ask about a dozen questions so I'll know that I, I'm just kidding. Yes. Could you stand and speak oh, a little bit louder yeah. for well, me, please? What would you say to critics who would say, well, if the tabernacle and all this was God's plan to illustrate Jesus, uh -huh. us, you know, so many years later, mm -hmm. why did he choose, you know, just the Jewish people in that time? You know, it, it, okay. seems, it seems so small. Yeah. There's another question I never have an answer for, the why question. I can talk about how, what, when, who, and so on. But the whys, I have no answer for. Why God does anything, I really don't have an answer. Um, and frankly, I think most of us will have a lot of why questions to ask Papa when we are with him. Uh, so I, I could speculate, I could give you what I think about uh, reason. Uh, for instance, I see in other places in Scripture that God says he takes the nothingness of things and raises something out of it. In other words, he takes, the, he takes the dead and raises them to life. He takes the nothing and brings about something. That's what God does. Then I would say, now Israel was a nothing nation. And so God chose the nothing of Israel to bring the biggest something the earth has ever known, the Lord Jesus, ultimately. But that doesn't answer why God did it. That's just what I see as a thing that parallels or correlates to who. Uh, we're in for an eternity of questions, QA, that only Papa can answer when we stand before him. We really are. A great question, but I don't have real legitimate answers for why questions, and I have to be honest and upfront with that. I don't know. This is why when as a pastor, someone would have a tragedy happen to their family. For instance, we had a, a couple, she was drunk, out at the lake in Wichita Falls. Her three children were all waiting together, stepped in a hole, and all three drowned. I'd never heard of them, never met them. I had been their cousin's pastor in another city. They called, the cousin called me, asked me to go by. They were not believers. She and he were left, lost all three children. I'll never forget the devastation I felt going. I'll never forget that. I talked to him. She was sitting in a rocking chair, rocking, moaning, oblivious of anybody around her. Ken and Peggy in their name, and I tried to help them and prayed with them. They asked me to do the funeral. I consented. The day of the funeral, they were there. Family was there. Three little caskets. 
I stood up and I said, ladies and gentlemen, if you've come today for me to tell you why this has happened, you've come to the wrong place and the wrong person because I don't have a clue. I don't know why. It seems so absolutely wrong to me. I don't have any answer. But I can tell you where these children are. And I did. I told them where these children are. The little girl had made a profession of faith for it, but sure her dad wouldn't let her be baptized. She was one of the bus kids they brought in. So I just preached Jesus, the only way to heaven. That's where they are. Next Sunday morning, Ken and Peggy Hurley, their name, came walking in and sat down. I gave the invitation. Here they came. They both came to know the Lord. Ken later went to seminary, trained, pastored church in Pennsylvania. I went up to do meetings for him. They're both dead now. You know what Ken and Peggy said? The reason they were open to me and willing to come is because I honestly told them, I don't know. I can't tell you why. They were so tired of people trying to tell them why things, they caught it. And that's, that's legitimately, I believe, what why questions will do. I don't know why. I really don't. Great question. I have it, as a matter of fact. I really do. I ask that question internally all the time. Lord, I don't understand why this, with my granddaughter, by the way, the surgery she has to have, uh, looks like it'll be in St. Louis, is the amputation of both of her legs. She'll be losing them from uh, mid-thigh down. Um, but she's never had any feelings in her legs at all. And now they've become a detriment to her health because uh, she can't tell when they're pressing against a wheelchair and they're breaking down. And Lord, why? And this little girl abused by that preacher. Why? I don't have any answers. I don't have any answers. I do know that what happens to her doesn't define her. And by the way, the counselor for my... Did I tell you this? I don't want to repeat it. What the counselor told my daughter? Okay, after a few years, of, two or three years of counseling, the counselor said, well, we're done. Cherry said, what do you mean? Oh, your daughter's fine. Cherry said, explain to me, please. Well, she knows that uh, what happened to her, what was done to her, does not define who she is. And she refuses to allow it to be the defining thing about her person. And that counselor said, where'd she learn that? Cherry said, well, I taught her that. What our dad and mom teach us, that our identity is in Christ, who we are by the grace of God, and what somebody does or what events happen or what thing is done to us never is a defining moment. Oh, it can be painful. Well, this is. It's painful. It happened. She's 29 Saturday. Happened when she was nine years. Happened at her birth. Then this later thing when she was nine years old. I'll ask Papa one of these days, why, Dara? And I really believe there'll be understanding. But I don't have a clue right now. And it's that way with like God using Israel. Why? I don't know. But I do see the pictures of how God takes the something and does uh, the nothing and does something out of it. I had a friend, Stuart Briscoe, 
who was the uh, co-worker with Major Ian Thomas years ago. Stuart was coming to America to start a church. So he talked to a friend, a preacher friend, about where he should go. And Stuart finally said, I think I'll go to Milwaukee. And uh, the friend said, oh, no, don't go there. Milwaukee is the graveyard of evangelicals. And Stuart said, oh, good. My God brings life out of death. I want to go to the deadest place in America. And he did. And he established a church that now runs about 30,000 in attendance on a weekend. And his son took over the ministry and all that kind of thing because he wanted to go where the God who raises life out of death will be seen as more glorious. That may be a reason why. We've seen great things happen, but I would never say, well, it's good that it happened, so that could happen. I can't do that. Does this help? Why questions sometimes can't be answered? Uh, and and uh, great question. I appreciate it being raised because I think it helps us. Any other question? If you need to slip out for your children, feel free. I'm long-winded and I'm in no hurry, so as long as you ask questions, I'll stay. But if you need to listen, feel free. Nothing spiritual about sitting here, you know. You're just as spiritual picking up your kids, okay? Man, I get excited when I think people are plugging into what I'm trying to say because not, it's not heard by everybody. It's not believed by everybody, and I understand that. I understand that. But it is a way of life that has revolutionized where I am. And I think it's scriptural. I think it's relational. See, I used to study the Bible like it was a handbook for rules. And then I discovered that the Word of God is a guidebook for relationships. And it literally transformed my understanding of the Bible. For example, if you love me, keep my commandments. I used to read that like a performance thing. If I love him, I'll keep his commandments. So, boy, I'm going to keep his commandments to prove that I love him. That's not what that verse is saying. It's not telling you to do something. It's saying this. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. Do you see the difference? Commandment keeping born out of love for instead of out of a legal thing of doing so that. What we do is because he loves us, we love. Because he's forgiven us, we forgive. Because he lives in us, we live. Because he rules, we follow. But it's not that we've got to follow. We've got to do. We've got to. It's a relational thing. You love Jesus. I mean, genuinely love him, by the way. The only way you can really love Jesus is to know how much he really loves you first. Do you know what you are to God? You are accepted. You're loved. You're forgiven. He even likes you. If God's got a refrigerator in heaven today, your picture's on the front door. <laughs> he smiles every time he looks at your picture. Now, that's a metaphor, okay? It's an analogy. You're special to God. Somebody said, but Brother Paul, I, you don't know what I know. You don't understand. I'm not saying you're worthy of that. You know the difference between being worth something and being worthy? 
There's a world of difference. I'm not into antiques, but if I went into an antique store and I saw this thing, thing on a machine, you know, I don't know what it is. I pick it up, two hundred dollars. Two hundred. I wouldn't give you twenty cents for that. Set it down, start to walk off. Person behind me walks up, picks it. Oh, look! I've been looking for this. Only $200, they go to the cash register, pay $200, walk out, thrilled to death. I go to the cash register guy and I say, what is it with them? How much was that thing worth? You know what his answer would be? Anything someone's willing to pay for it. What are you worth? Anything God was willing to pay. That makes you priceless. That makes you precious. He loves you beyond measure. Now, worthy of it? Far from it. Worth something to him? Quite precious. Valuable. That's what Christianity really is. So you learn how much he loves you. You know what happens? Your love for him begins to explode. But you'll never be able to truly love him until you know and are convinced and think, believe he genuinely loves you, has forgiven you, has accepted you. He even likes you. He made you to start with and he's redoing the makeover and it's all called grace. That's Christianity. That's walking as the house of God. Any other question? I answered a question there. Nobody asked it. <laughs> all right. We're almost finished. Any other questions? One more. The uh, rituals that the priest went through as far as only the high priest and mm -hmm. once a year, mm -hmm. did that cease after Nicodemus destroyed the... Our new high priest, the Lord Jesus, established the new covenant, Yes. Yes. Now there was the period of, you remember, 40 days Jesus showed himself alive, and uh, 70 AD, there was, it was uh, uh, in 70 AD, how many, how many years later was it, uh, there was total destruction of the city of Jerusalem. So there was a period in which the old was like turning a ship, in, a, a battleship in a harbor. You know, it takes, it took some time, but that turned. And uh, we're in the new covenant. And we have a new high priest. And we're all priests. And everything that was physical and tangible back then, only a picture of what's real today. Good question. All of them, good question. Even the one I couldn't answer. Good question. All right, let's stand and may I pray with you as we leave. Father, sometimes... We lose the joy of just being together. But it's been rekindled for me in these two days. Thank you for the privilege of being with these people. Father, thank you for the staff, this pastor, the people, the congregation. And I pray your blessing on them in Christ Jesus and that the reality of the Holy Spirit will be evidenced more and more as they go on with Jesus. 
Thank you for the privilege of being your spokesman to them in these short hours. And may you take away anything that is of, not of your spirit and may you plant deep anything your spirit has given. That's my prayer in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for the privilege of being with you.